Pastor Tom Rempel. He has spent decades as a senior pastor of Faith Bible Church in Lincoln, uh, recently retired. Retired is probably not the appropriate word. I don't know that Tom ever really is going to retire, but he's with a new ministry now, MyBridge Radio, kind of under their umbrella called Momentum and uh, Momentum Transfer. So we are pleased to have Pastor Tom Rimple. So let's welcome him this morning. Thank you. You're most gracious. Rumor has it that you got a pretty good volleyball team. So uh, excited to see how that works out. I was going to say, if you have a Bible, but I already watched you open your Bible. But would you turn it to the gospel according to Mark? I think you've been studying here for the year. The gospel of Mark, and we're in the sixth chapter this morning. My good friend Chris Weiniger from up in Norfolk said, you're a great group of people to teach the Bible to. He said, man, they open their Bibles and they actually listen. So uh, for those of us to preach, that is a great encouragement. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 begins, And he went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. And they were saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is with, not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. To set it into context, you can, as you know, you're not allowed to just parachute into a text and just interpret it the way it sits there without looking at the neighborhood that it lives in. This, this particular one, what happened is a year ago, Jesus had come to his hometown, Nazareth, and you remember that he had gone into the synagogue and they had asked him to speak that morning, and so they handed him a scroll, they handed him the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolled it. And he read from the, the scroll of Isaiah, then he rolled it back up, and it said and he sat down in order to teach them. And he said to them, today these scriptures have been fulfilled in your midst. And they rose up to off him. They, they drove him out, wanted to push him over the hill. They were going to stone him because they felt like this, this guy, this carpenter that grew up in their neighborhood, had claimed to be God. And for that reason, he's blasphemous, and they ought to kill him. This is his hometown. On top of that, his own family had publicly humiliated him. They, they thought that, that he was gone insane, and so they went to try to rescue him. And when they came out to the house, they said, you know, your mom and your brothers and out there. And Jesus said, well, who is my mother and my brothers? Is it not he who does the will of my Father in heaven? In that year's time, since he had been there, Jesus, in this neighborhood, primarily over by Capernaum, but he had been casting out demons. 
There was one guy that was paralyzed, and he had four friends, and they carried him on a cot, and they tried to get into the living room where Jesus was, you remember, and, and it was so packed full they couldn't, so they went up on the stairs on the outside. They created a skylight for the homeowner, and they lowered their friend on four ropes right in front of Jesus, and they're, they're kind of leaning over the top watching, and Jesus forgives his sins, and then he tells him to get up, take his cot, and go home, and he gets up, and he walks out without any physical therapy or rehab or anything like that at all. He'd gone on an overnight trip across the sea with his disciples, and a huge storm had come up. Jesus is sleeping. He's tired. The disciples are scared out of their minds. They're professional seamen, but they thought for sure this was the end of their life. And Jesus stood up and rebuked the waves, and they were calm. He'd gone across the sea to a Gentile area, and there was a demon-possessed man who was living in the tombs, and he terrorized everybody. People wouldn't even go for funerals to the cemetery because this guy was there, and Jesus commanded not just one, but a legion of demons out of the man. He sent them, the demons said, we got to have some place to go, so he sent them over to the swine, and 2,000 pigs would rather commit suicide than be demon-possessed, and so he frightened the entire community. He's going on his way to minister to a dying young girl, and a woman in the crowd grabbed hold of his jacket. And when she did that, a long-term bleeding issue was healed. And then right before our text here, Jesus had gone to the home, got there too late, according to the people, and a young child, a daughter, had died. And Jesus instructed them to clear the room, and he commanded her, and she came back to life. At that point, it says, and he went away from there and came to his hometown. A second chance, a year later. The first time, they totally rejected him. They wanted to off him. But because of his love for his neighbors and his family, he went back a second time. And when he came there, and began to teach in the same synagogue that they had drug him out of and tried to off him a year earlier, they raised three questions. You can mark them in your Bible. Question number one, where did this man get these things? What's his source? You see, the problem is the great teachers of that day had gone to great schools. They had certification. They had, they had, they had been taught under a rabbi of some kind, but they they didn't know where Jesus had gotten his schooling. After all, his first 30 years of his life, he grew up right down the street. They thought that they knew him. Second question, they said, is what is this wisdom given to him? Wisdom, as you know, is simply that skill, that ability to take the knowledge that you have and to put shoe leather on it. It's the practical application of the insight that you've gained over a lifetime. Where did he get the wisdom and third, they said, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, the interesting thing about that is to notice that he was not doing mighty works in his hometown simply because when there is no faith, the divine power is reduced or limited. He is not going to just entertain them. And yet the rumor is that he is doing jaw-dropping miracles. And the question is, well, how are all these mighty works done by his hands. But then they went on and they asked a most embarrassing, perhaps, perhaps just a sarcastic or a caustic question in verse 3. Is not this 
the carpenter. Now, we think in terms of the carpenter and our, all of our romantic pictures have this little boy, Jesus, you know, playing with the wood shavings in his father Joseph's carpenter shop and all that. But we're talking about an adult here. So he grew up learning the trade from his father. But a carpenter in their culture didn't just simply make tables, chairs, and desks. But a carpenter would actually hang doors for the neighbors. He would frame things for them. Perhaps he would carve out a, a yoke for his pulling oxen. He was basically the city's handyman. This guy had probably, this Jesus had probably done some project in somebody's home. Everybody that was there said, isn't this just simply the handyman? Isn't he also the son of Mary? Now, in their culture, a, a, a young man was always, or a daughter was always identified by the father. They should have said, isn't this Joseph's son? But because a year ago they'd already rejected him and wanted to off him, they, they, they are causing, this, they're raising this question, was he not conceived out of wedlock? Isn't this the illegitimate child of Mary? And his brothers, we know his brothers, James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. And oh, by the way, he's trying to get us convinced that he is the promised Messiah. Even his own family doesn't believe that. Can you imagine what it was like? I had an older brother. I, I, I went to school. When you're a second-born middle child, you always go to school off of the eldest. So my older brother was a little bit of a boundary pusher. He, would, he was always bend the, the lines, the rules of the household a little bit. And I was just smart enough to let him try things and then step back and watch and see how, how that worked out, how my dad responded to that. And if it worked out okay, I would pull that trick myself. And if he got in trouble for it, I would decide not to do that. Can you imagine growing up and your older brother is Jesus? Mom, why doesn't Jesus ever get in trouble? Why doesn't Jesus ever put in time out? Why didn't dad ever take the keys to the family chariot away from Jesus? Why, why is it? And so his brothers are looking at him, and he's not exactly like everybody else, but at the same time, he's their older brother. And are not his sisters with us? So he's got four brothers and at least two sisters, because it's plural. Could have been more. In other words, he's one of us. He, he grew up in our neighborhood. We, we know him. And so because of that, they took offense at him. And so Jesus responded. He said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, called out his own family, and even his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, hopefully, as you've been going through Mark this year, you've, you've noticed the various reactions to Jesus. Go back to chapter 1. Notice, and a man was demon-possessed, verse 26, and the unclean spirit convulsed him, crying out with a loud voice, and came out of him. And they, that is the observing people, were all amazed. Notice chapter 2, verse 12. The young man is lowered on a cot. Jesus heals him. He walks out, verse 12. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, went out from all of them, so that they were all amazed. Notice chapter 4. Jesus calms the storm at sea. Verse 41 says of the disciples, and they were filled with great fear. 
Notice chapter 5, verse 15. The herdsmen fled and they told the city and the country. The people came to see what had happened. And they came and they saw Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been a legion, had had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Or the lady who was healed by touching his jacket, chapter 5, verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And notice then at the end in verse 42, he has raised the deceased little girl to life again. And immediately the girl got up, began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And now you come to chapter 6. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many heard him, and they were astonished. But then they said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? And they took offense at him. All of the reactions of those who are watching Jesus. And finally, we have Jesus' reaction to those who disbelieve, and he marveled, verse 6, because of their unbelief. Starting in verse 7, he calls 12 ordinary men. He called the 12, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. This isn't the first time that he has sent out a team. You remember there were 72 that were following him, and he sent the 70 out in pairs in order to do ministry. And then he spent a whole night not sleeping, little insomnia, and he stayed up and he talked to his heavenly father, and he has to narrow the 70 down to 12. And finally, he names the 12, and what a ruddy lot they were. Four of them were professional fishermen, maybe more. There were a couple others from their hometown. Perhaps they worked in the fishing industry as well. So there's Peter, Andrew, James, John. And then there's this former IRS guy, Levi or Matthew, who is a PK who must have broken his grandmother's heart, must have broken his mother's heart. In rebellion, he rejected. Apparently, trying to fulfill the law had just exhausted him. And so he actually sold his services to their enemy, to the Romans. And Jesus calls him and adds him to a team where on the total other end of the pendulum, there is one zealot who is actually going to overthrow the government of Rome with a military revolution. So you got one that sells himself out to Rome and one that's going to overthrow and he puts them all on the team together. And he takes these 12 ordinary men and he sent them out two by two, giving them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics, not two or two... uh, Uh, wardrobes, just one. And he said to them, whenever you enter our house and stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a sign of rejection or as affirmation of their rejection. It's a testimony against them. So they went out, they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Jesus called 12 ordinary men, and he asked them to do the following four things. When he called them, he said, number one, be with him. Number two, learn from him. Number three, 
go out for him. But the biggest challenge of all is number four, depend radically on him. Be with him, learn from him, go out for him, but depend radically on him. Don't take your own provisions with you. God will provide as you go. And also, when you arrive, don't trade up your housing. Be content wherever a door is open for you to stay, and I'll give you the power and authority to heal and to cast out demons. They went out with a message to deliver. And then he throws in, and <clears throat> when Gordon asked me, would, would you do the chapel, and would you do chapter 6, verse 1 to 32, I'm like, I'm one of those guys that can get four sermons out of one verse, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure that they don't want to stay all day for this. So I'm asking myself, why did the author, why did Mark, when he's recording the life of Jesus, why in this context did he tell us about the death of John the Baptist? Now, King Herod heard of it. That is what Jesus was doing and what the disciples did in his name. And so some said, this is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he is Elijah from the Old Testament. And others had an opinion. They said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of the old. But notice verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. They were like, what? John, whom I beheaded. Well, actually, one of his henchmen beheaded him. He sent him to the jail, take a sword, remove his head, bring it on a silver platter. He goes on to tell the story here. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and kept him safe. He feared John, he feared Herodias, his wife, and he feared the opinion of people. When he heard of him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. That was like the coveted ticket. Going to that banquet was a big deal. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And then she kind of kicked it up a notch. She came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist, throw in her line on a platter. Boy, that ought to ruin everybody's appetite for the banquet. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath, so he feared his wife, he feared John the Baptist, and he fears the opinion of his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. We don't have time to unpack that whole story. I want you to notice that the story of the death of John the Baptist is 
motivated by the question about Jesus is doing these jaw-dropping miracles. Twelve men are going out in his name doing jaw-dropping miracles. Where is the source of this power and authority? And as they begin to debate that, not one person said, I think that this is a man from God. They had to have some other explanation, but then it came down to Herod's guilty conscience filled in the blank. I think this is John raised from the dead or perhaps reincarnated. So he feared John, he feared Herodias, and he feared the people, but he did not fear God. You see, when you do not fear God, you will find yourself fearing everything and everyone. But when you fear God, you find that you need fear nothing or anyone other. Just a sidebar, just a principle to come out of this text. So when you're teaching this to Sunday school class on Sunday, I think the takeaway on this one is all of us are immortal until God's purposes for our life have been fulfilled. John the Baptist is only 33 years old. His whole life from the womb, filled with the spirit from his mother's womb, was lived for one purpose, and that was to introduce Jesus, the Savior, to the world. He is immortal until that mission's been accomplished, and then God allows him to go home. We close our text with verse 30, and the apostles returned to Jesus. They told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Jesus determined that his followers had earned themselves a sabbatical. Let me give you some takeaways. Just five. There, I, this is five that were narrowed down from a, about four pages of Takeaway. So that, these are my golden five. So when I was in Bible college, uh, Miss Elsie said, said, boys, boys, when you get ready to preach, you will have spent 40 hours studying a passage of Scripture. You will have far more notes than any of us sitting listening to have time to hear. So take all of those 40 hours and just give us the top 10%. The rest of the 90% stays in the can. Just give us the best 10%. After 50 years in pastoral ministry, to this day, my bride of 54 years, at the end of a Sunday morning, over lunch, at one point will look at me and said, was that the best 10%? I hope this is the best 10%. Takeaway number one, your home may be your most difficult mission. Your home may be your most difficult mission. Those are the people that know you best. Those are the people that have observed you. And when you come to them to tell them of the wonders of the gospel of Jesus, they may be the first to give you the Heisman. Your home may be your most difficult mission. However, ministry, mission begins at home. Jesus went to his home city, and they wanted to off him. A year later, he went and gave them a second chance. Because ministry begins at home, even though it's your most difficult. Second one is unbelief hinders divine working. 
Unbelief hinders divine working. The righteous must live by faith. Those who do not believe will not see the power of God at work. Number three, repping Jesus demands radical dependence. Repping Jesus demands radical dependence. When he tells you to go, you go. Where he tells you to go, you go. Where he tells you to stay, you stay. But as you go, and where you go, and as you stay, is depending on his provision. He told the disciples, I will teach you that I can provide for you. Your only responsibility is to go. Number four, lessons from John the Baptist. Speaking the truth is costly. Speaking the truth is costly. We're required, we're obligated in love to speak the truth. But there is no guarantee that there won't be a recourse or a reaction or a response. But number five, and uh, I just heard that you've got a very short week of school left, so this one fits right in. I didn't even know that when I put it. Sometimes you must come apart before you come apart. Sometimes you must come apart before you come apart. Sometimes in serving the Lord and being faithful and doing what he's asked you to do, sometimes you need a rest and you need a break. Elijah pushed it to the breaking point, 1 Kings chapter 19. He, he called down fire from heaven. He slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal. And then a woman said, before the sun goes down today, you're going to be like those 450 prophets. And he ran for his life, scared by a skirt. And God put him to sleep beside a brook. And he fed him by birds, and he gave him a drink and put him back to sleep. Sometimes you have to come apart before you come apart. A year earlier, they wanted to off him. A year later, they took offense at him. But Jesus had a bigger mission than his hometown. He came to be the savior of the world. So for your small group discussion, let me suggest this. Ask yourself the question, what would it look like for us to be Jesus in our square mile? If we were one of the 12 that was sent out, what would it look like for me to be Jesus in my square mile? And to answer that question, struggle with these things. Number one, if Jesus lived where you live or went to school where you go to school or work where you work, what would he see? Number two, if Jesus lived where you live or went to school where you go to school or worked where you work and he saw what you see, what would he feel? And then number three, if he lived where you live and sees what you see and you felt what he felt, what would he do? What would he see? What would he feel? What would he do? One more word of caution. Before you can go out for Jesus, you must be certain that you know Jesus. You cannot introduce another to someone you do not know yourself. The frightening 
takeaway from the first six verses of this particular chapter is this. Too many times, over-familiarity bleeds disinterest or apathy. Beware of being over-familiar with Jesus. My personal story, 56 years ago, I almost became a student here. My father was hired here to teach, but after three days of house searching, we couldn't find a house, so he became a pastor two weeks later in Cozad. My grandfather, two uncles, my father, and 15 cousins are either pastors or pastor's wives and evangelists. My dad was one of the most gifted evangelists I've ever known. I grew up telling the stories and hearing the stories of Jesus. I got married while I was still in high school. Three years later, I went to Bible college. And in October of 1971, doing an inductive Bible study in the Gospel of John, God in amazing grace saved me. The problem with my soul was I was too familiar with Jesus. I was like the kid that lived down the block and said, isn't that Mary's son? Isn't that the community handyman? Beware lest going to Nebraska Christian High School, you become so familiar with Jesus that you simply know about him, but you never take time to know him. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the living spirit that stirs our hearts, teaches us, and applies it. May we learn the lessons from the rejection of the neighbors of Jesus and the response of belief in the hearts of those he called to send out. And may our conscience be as sensitive as John the Baptist for where we have rebelled and resisted against you. May we be different than him, though, that when we are convicted of our sin, may we come to you for amazing grace, I pray. In Jesus' name.